Welcome to the NCO Journal Podcast, where we explore NCO professional development. This is a podcast series where we discuss, publish articles with authors, and provide a forum for the open exchange of ideas, information, and solutions. With us is Sergeant First Class's Valdo Akite, NCOIC of the NCO Journal, Chago Zapata, Managing Editor of the NCO Journal, and Dr. Robert Thompson, a historian with the Army University Press Films team. Today, we discuss the article Mission Command in the Eudrang Valley with Master Sergeant Jason Crawford, a student at the U.S. Army Sergeant's Major Academy. Master Sergeant, thank you for joining us. Uh, before we kick things off, could you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, of course. Uh, you know, first, uh, thanks very much for, for the invite. Uh, you know, this is a pretty, pretty amazing opportunity. But uh, I am uh, Master Sergeant Jason Crawford. Um, I am uh, currently a student in Class 72 at the Sergeant's Major course. I am uh, intelligence or senior intelligence sergeant by trade. Uh, my most recent uh, job was an operations sergeant in the 229th MI Battalion or the Defense Language Institute. Prior to that, I did about four years at uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Had a couple jobs while I was there. Um, I did an operations sergeant position there. Um, then I was a, a senior enlisted advisor for both one of the um, analytic divisions and then for the Army element writ large. Before that, I spent a good bit of time in Forcecom, you know, worked about every position an Intel sergeant could in the brigade setting. You know, I was a, was a first sergeant, was a battalion NCOIC, and was the brigade S2 NCOIC. Excellent. Sir, thank you for joining. Uh, could you go ahead and tell us who you are and, and, and a little bit about yourself? I'm Dr. Uh, Rob Thompson. I'm on the uh, AUP films team. Before joining the films team, my specialization was the Vietnam War. I uh, wrote a book on it, Clear, Hold, and Destroy. So I studied pacification in a particular province called Phu Yen. How, how familiar are you with the, uh, the Battle uh, of uh, Yadrang Valley? So for me, what's interesting about Yadrang, it's the first uh, major engagement between Pavan and the U.S. Army. We see it as a, at least from the historic, historical perspective, as the first test of Westmoreland's search and destroy approach to handling the Vietnam War. Both sides see it as a victory. If you see We Were Soldiers and you see a lot of the coverage of it, we tend to think of it as this monumental U.S. victory. But the North Vietnamese saw it as also a victory for their approach to handling the war, that they could go toe-to-toe with the U.S. and come out um, intact, that their army wasn't completely destroyed. We see this kind of play out again and again in Vietnam, this uh, air mobility, trying to bring Pavan to battle, Pavan survives, and there's you know, another battle, and then another battle, and this plays out, you know, 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, you know, it keeps going. Uh, so that's what's interesting um, as far as, like, mission command goes, uh, how more kind of, like, cements his legacy right there and then. Uh, with uh, fighting like a, one of the toughest battles. Uh, so it's pretty uh, intense. There's a lot of stuff that happens there that becomes quite uh, attached to the Vietnam War. We get, like, I believe, the first arc light raid. He has to call Broken Arrow when he thinks he's going to be overrun. Uh, we have two totally different battles at two totally different uh, landing zones. So there's a lot of different things. The lower you get, they're happening totally differently but yet they're all trying to achieve the same end result, and that's that's trying to enact Westmoreland's approach to get uh, the enemy to battle and just destroy them. 
Massar, can you please give us a brief description of what the article is about? Yeah, of course. Um, so this article takes a look at uh, mission command. You know, mission command is one of those things that we like to think is a buzzword, but it's really not. You know, mission command plays a very, very important role in the success of operations writ large. So what what the article does is it tries to use a case study or an example of where when what of how mission command unfolds on the battlefield and some of the things that need to happen to support mission command. And then it, it discusses a little bit of what, what might have happened had mission command principles not been followed. What inspired you to write this article? So I, I think the main inspiration for, for this article is, you know, taking a look at how can leaders at the organizational level down to the tactical level ensure they're doing what they need to do to preserve the force and accomplish the mission. And when you think about Army operations, it really does all start with mission command. It all starts with that capacity to command and control troops on the battlefield. And I think with with the time we're in right now, kind of transitioning from 20 years of, of COIN, you know, where we were used to one style of mission command and we were used to one style of fight, you know, moving into this more uh, high intensity conflict, this unified land operations, we really, I think, need to shift the focus a lot on what our training is and how mission command is going to function in a near peer battlefield. Now, now speaking of uh, mission command, now mission command is is mainly an, an officer's responsibility. So, how does that? How does this? Uh, what takeaways do, do NCOs have for this article? If mission command is mainly an, an, an officer responsibility. Yeah, well, I, I think a lot of people say mission commands an officer's responsibility. I, I would counter with mission command really is a, a leader's responsibility to and everybody, every soldier responsibility, because each each soldier has a little bit of onus on holding up their end of the bargain when it comes to mission command. Because um, if we're not, you know, the the commander is going to move to a more authoritative style of leadership, which is which is what we don't want. You know, it's not going to get lasting results. It's not going to get commitment. So where the NCO comes in, I think a lot is when, when you think an NCO, you know, what does an NCO do? They, they monitor training, they conduct training, and then they make sure things are resourced. So, you know, from the Sergeant Major down, the Sergeant Major needs to understand what that commander's intent is, you know, and that's one of the principles of mission command. And then help vocalize and verbalize that across the force because they have that experience and they're usually going to be the closest individual to the commander and kind of have, a, have the ability to see inside what that commander's thinking. And then after that, they need to go, you know, conduct some training assessments, uh, find out is is the training being conducted leading to the the commander's plan? Um, is it building confidence? And are we getting after those mission essential tasks that are going to build us that, you know, that that confidence and the ability for the commander to accept a little bit of risk with junior leaders leading the way in certain parts of the fight? And then lastly, I think, uh, you know, a sergeant major, a first sergeant, a platoon sergeant, a big part of it is making sure you're resourced, making sure you can do the training that you're supposed to be doing. And if you're not speaking up, um, and that's going to build that trust that you're going to need later on. It sounded like you um, were kind of hinting at competence being um, kind of like the baseline for a lot of these other principles, because with competence, commanders can... Uh, trust their units more, can delegate more, can accept risk a little bit more, knowing how well their their forces are trained or how capable they are. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about how important competence is um, before heading out to a mission, maybe um, during the train-up phase? Oh, no, no, absolutely. Like, I, I think, 
you, you said it exactly right. You know, competence is the is the the cornerstone of mission command. If, if the commander doesn't trust in the capability or the expertise of the individual soldiers or the teams or the squads or the platoons, they're not going to be able to exercise that that mission command. There won't there probably won't be a shared understanding and there definitely won't be mutual trust that will lead to that risk acceptance. So I think the Army does this part really well, right? We start with individual training, then we move to, uh, you know, squad or crew training, and then we move into, you know, company level training and, um, and larger and larger and larger. And each time we're being validated. So there is somebody coming out and measuring the level of competence of that that mission or that size of, of troops to see if they're ready to move on to the next step. So it, it's important to always take all of those training events serious and, you know, practice how you fight because you're, you're showing your commander you can do what it is they need you to do. And I think, you know, um, I, I like to draw, um, I, I like to draw a connection to sports a lot because I think that's very easy for folks to understand sometimes. So, so you think about it, even though so think of the coach as like your commander and then think of the quarterback as one of your company commanders, right? If, if the quarterback, you know, isn't very competent when it comes to knowing how to read a defense or understanding situational football, they're not going to have as much opportunity to call audibles at the line of scrimmage, you know, but if in practice they're showing they can read that defense, they're showing they can see something or they're showing they know where a hot reads at that offensive coordinator or that head coach is going to give them every opportunity to call an audible. And I mean, I think as junior leaders, we all want that opportunity. We all want that opportunity to shine. We, we're, we're closest to the fight. We have the real-time intel. We know exactly what's going on. So we want the opportunity to react. But if our force isn't competent enough for the commander to have that trust in their ability to succeed when they make their own decisions or when they, when they call that audible or hot read, they're not going to give us that ability. Did the book We Were Soldiers Once and Young by Lieutenant, uh, sorry, uh, retired Lieutenant General Moore and Joseph Galloway uh, or the movie, the the Mel Gibson movie, have any uh, part in your decision to write a mission command article about this engagement? Did they have? Did did those things play any 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 role in in your decision to do this? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, so when when we were getting ready to to to, to conduct some uh, some writing and some analysis and synthesis on the mission command topic, you know, I I thought back to, you know, what what battle or what case study might be best suited. And it had been a little while, you know, I think I was a young sergeant when I first read We Were Soldiers Once and Young. And I just remember when I was reading it, one of the things that really stood out to me was was not so much uh, Colonel Moore at the time, because, uh, you know, I was a young sergeant. So of course, I was, I was reading a lot. And every time I would see a passage about Sergeant Major Plumley, I was like, wow, this guy's really on it. Um, and I just remembered, you know, back to that. And I was like, well, let, let me pick this book back up um, now that we have this reason to write it and, and, and retake a look and see if it fits. You know, see if mission command is there because I felt like what I was reading in the book, the relationship between Sergeant Major Plumley and uh, retired Colonel Moore and um, just the soldiers of that unit, I was like, there has to, there had to have been some mission command going on. You know, I think when I was a sergeant, I didn't quite fully understand mission command, but I was like, it has to be there. Um, and then, of course, yeah, uh, the, the movie's a very, very entertaining movie. Movie, um, so it, it definitely made me want to do it. Uh, made me want to write on this battle potentially as opposed to, to any others, you know, just because I, I think that, I think it's one too that a lot of folks can understand because there is so much media out there on it. Um, so hopefully folks will read this article and they'll have something they can go back to and look and kind of come up with their own assessment and, and it'll just get them thinking about those mission command concepts and how, how it might impact their unit's training plan. So as you just said, uh, mission command 
or the army uses mission command rather to empower its subordinates to use their initiative uh, while working within a commander's intent. Can you explain kind of how this plays out in this battle? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think there's kind of a couple ways that this plays out in this battle, you know. Um, so uh, initial orders aside, uh, we'll, we'll skip straight to when they moved into the defensive posture and they were just trying to hold the line. You know, uh, communications equipment wasn't great. It wasn't working wonderfully that day. And a lot of it had to be diverted to make sure that they could call for fire effectively and reach medevacs. But the individuals passing word on the ground, you know, as they were letting those company commanders and those platoon leaders know what it was they were trying to do, the platoon leaders were completely able to make the decision on which piece of terrain to hold up on to, to, close, to close their formation and prevent any flanking movements from the enemy. Um, and I think that I think that helped Colonel Moore a lot and Sergeant Major Plumley a lot because then they could focus on the bigger picture and they could focus on getting new supplies, new supplies, new troops in and getting the injured off the battlefield. Right. So if Colonel Moore had to run around and be a platoon sergeant or a company commander that entire time, they, they probably would have lost that airfield very, very quickly. Um, and then I think another part that really stuck out to me in in the book. Um, and then I think they they sent, they probably sensationalized it a little bit in the in the movie. I, I can't really call to that some. But if you remember the uh, the platoon that was lost, you know, very early on and they lost their platoon leader. They lost their platoon sergeant. They lost their weapon sergeant. So that's kind of the top three for your platoon. So you're, so you're left with a young squad leader, you know, kind of trying to lead these few folks left that are outside of reach of the actual perimeter. And they're under heavy enemy fire. You know, you think a lot of times what a commander's going to do is he's going to direct that company commander exactly how to conduct that operation to go re recover that platoon. Um, but Colonel Moore showed a lot of trust in the initiative of that young sergeant and of that company commander to kind of figure it out. And, and, it, and it did eventually end up working out to their advantage. And they didn't risk, they didn't risk breaking their perimeter in order to do so. Uh, and and I, think, I think that's just a very specific detail, but, but more so just each company kind of operating within the limits or, or the boundaries of holding their own defensive line. And then two, it also, because they were because they had that because they were afforded that disciplined initiative they were able to determine that every time they fired on the enemy so the enemy had a significant advantage in this fight right they had the terrain um they had the overwhelming firepower they had the numbers so as we're as we're playing that defensive perimeter anytime american troops would fire they would give away their location and then the north vietnamese army was able to overwhelm it with fire um so what they learned was, you know, hey, we know they're using terrain. We know they're trying to get as close to us as they can. Let's let them. And then they'll mass and we can call for fire almost right on top of us. Very dangerous. You know, um, they, they probably had to receive some form of approval to break some, you know, some fire protection measures uh, but and, and control measures. But it, it ended up working out. And, and I think if if Colonel Moore was trying to command that entire fight by himself, they probably don't figure that out and they probably suffer a lot more casualties. You mentioned in your article how important communication is and, and you also mentioned just uh, a few minutes ago about fighting with near peer competitors, you know, um, in the future and how, you know, I so I see a couple parallels here about how this fight was with lack of communication systems, lack of of visibility and having to lose so many people, so many leadership positions early on in the fight, how that might compare 
to how we're going to have fights in the future. So, I mean, can you talk a little bit about um, why mission command, uh, understanding mission command is so important for young sergeants um, to realize because it's going to be something that we might have to face in the future. No, you're absolutely right. And and I'll go, I'll go, I'll, I'll start this by going back to the movie. So if anybody that's seen the movie, again, there's no, there's no true reference to this in the book that I could find. But if you go back to the movie, I actually think it's a really good scene. So it's early on, right after uh, Colonel Moore and Sergeant Major Plumley um, took command and they started running their training and they were designated as an air mobile unit, you know, think of them as today's air cav. And they, they were conducting air assault operations and they were seeming to get pretty good. You know, the platoon leader was jumping out of the bird just fine and they were setting up their, their defensive posture and establishing security right away. And then one of those, and then Sergeant Major Plumley just ran over and he's like, you know what, PL platoon sergeant, you're dead. Sergeant, you're in charge, what do you do? And he just looked dumbfounded. He just absolutely looked like, I have no idea. And I think that it's important for all of us as soldiers to realize that, that we need to know the mission and the responsibility at least two levels up in every position that we're in. Um, and that doesn't mean just knowing how to do the job, but no, but having access to all of the information, and that's where communication is key, that would enable us to do that job. You know, we need to have whatever intel it is. We need to have whatever operations order it is to include all the possible annexes. So we, so we have that shared understanding. So I think we need to communicate effectively to build that shared understanding to at least two levels down in every single position for success against a, a near peer conflict or another um, you know irregular conflict where heavy casualties might might be a higher certain or, or a higher probability you know because you think to our, our 20 years in in Iraq and Afghanistan we didn't we didn't take the number of casualties that we were taking in Vietnam Korea or World War II the near peer competitors i mean they 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 may have the capability to take out our communications um which means that just like you said young ncos have to be able to to take charge because maybe they don't have somebody from uh higher echelon you know uh, uh there to tell you what needs to be done so uh, i think that's an important takeaway absolutely sir absolutely so you talk about trust a little bit in your article and i think you just spoke about it uh, about how Lieutenant Colonel Moore trusted a young sergeant to act as a leader of a platoon after they lost their command team and how they trusted him to get them through the ordeal. Uh, for the forward platoon cut off from the rest of the battalion, what do you think it must have been like? And can you talk about that platoon and, and what you think that they might have went through? Um, yeah, sure. Um, you know, of course, this is all um, just, just, just assuming kind of what was going on there. But I'm sure that that was probably an extremely high uh, stress environment at the time. You know, you have the initial shock and awe of landing on a contested uh, landing zone. Then you immediately become engaged. Then you lose the three people that are senior to you that have probably been serving as your mentors in some capacity, people that you trusted yourself. Um, and now everything's completely changed. Uh, you, you, you had one, you had one idea in your mind of how things were gonna go. Um, and I think this is why adaptability becomes so important. And we need to kind of train a little bit to adaptability because you know, uh, everything that happens on the battlefield happens at the speed of war, which is faster than anything we can do in training. 
And the enemy's always going to have a vote. Um, and there's no stops. There's no resets. There's no after action reviews going in the middle of it that give you the opportunity to to, to change, you know, or, or um, you know, as they say at the different training centers, you know, recocking the formation to, to get them ready to go. And I just think there's, there's a ton of stress there. Uh, their communications weren't great because the company they're trying to reach back to is engaged in their own firefights. And, you know, it, that's, that has to be a long, hard night because you can hear all those sounds, you can hear all those things. And, and in battle, all of your emotions are heightened. And then when you're in shock as well, you, you know, you get that adrenaline push and all of your emotions are heightened. And it just shows a lot of, you know, self-control and self-awareness and just perseverance for those individuals that are out there alone to be able to push through, to be able to, to not give up or surrender or, you know, try to make a hard dash back at the formation. Because when, when you think about that, um, your, your initial response, or I'm sure the initial response for a lot of those soldiers was, oh, shoot, we got to turn around and we got to run back to our perimeter. But what do you think the greatest risk is when they turn and they run towards that perimeter when there's an enemy everywhere? You know, now we're probably looking at a friendly fire incident. And that a, a friendly fire incident that wipes out an entire platoon is probably, you know, probably crushes the spirits of, of that, that company. Um, it would likely be very difficult for them to continue when they see that they, they mowed down an entire platoon of their own people. I think that's one of the biggest takeaways from this article as well, is that um, when we think about these things in these situations and, and what happened, um, we, you know, I, I usually tend to think like, how can I prepare for something like that? And I think this is where NCOs and training come into play because the quality of the training is going to, is going to determine um, the outcome of some battles. And, and, and I think that's how we prepare for those situations is, is by having complex training, having different situations thrown in, understanding that, that not everything's going to go to plan. And, and if we do that during training, I think we, we prepare soldiers um, down the road. So, I mean, what, what, is, what, is, what, are, what is your thoughts on the takeaway for, for young NCOs to, to kind of, as they're reading this article, to kind of some other takeaways that you think about? Yeah, no, sir. I, th I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think the importance is we we have to make the training as realistic as possible. Um, we we and we have to make the training as stressful as possible. You know, of course, you're you're never quite going to right. Like you can't make it exactly like like war, and and you don't necessarily want to make it exactly like war because it's been proven, you know, from Iraq and Afghanistan that that operating at that level of of stress for so long does lead to some significant psychological and physiological conditions but you got to make it to a point where you're starting to build a little bit of their trust in themselves but then also you have to try to build a little bit of resiliency and then i think you know that, that that's another thing where everything in the army kind of ties together right like we do all of this master resiliency training but are we doing it right you know is is grabbing everybody and putting them in a company operating facility and doing a four hour block of training at the end of the quarter to try and knock out our stuff the right way? Or should we be doing MRT training, you know, during our training events when it's going to get the most bang for the buck where you can get it to where a soldier directly connects the activating event to how they need to respond to that activating event and build that resilience so that they have better faith in themselves when it comes time that they're put in that high pressure situation. And you, cause you want everybody to respond the right way or in the right manner. One of the, one of the things you you uh, you talked about was that um, 
Lieutenant Colonel Moore maintained responsibility for the situation and, and didn't blame either the bad intel or, or the actions of his team uh, or his actions, their actions, that is, on, uh, on what happened, you know, on some of the difficulties and challenges they had, uh, the, the hardships. Um, it's a pretty powerful thing. Can you elaborate a little bit on this? Can you talk a little bit on that as far as, um, you know, taking that responsibility? I guess you could always take it back, take it back to the president who had the, uh, the, 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 the little quote on his desk that says the buck stops here. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I, I, I think that's a good point that the buck does stop here um, when it, when it comes to being a good leader. And I think Colonel Moore shows what style of a leader is going to achieve the best results. And if you look at everything that he did, um, he did take that uh, responsibility for what was going on. And then, and then, uh, then I'll just point out another thing that, that I'm not sure I, I, I'm not sure if I put it in the article or not, but on multiple occasions, he, he was requested to leave the battlefield and he absolutely refused. And I think that says a lot about who Colonel Moore was as a leader. And I think that shows, you know, because when we say it, when we talk trust in mission command, we talk mutual trust. So that's not just the commander trusting the formation to do the right thing. That's the formation trusting the commander to do the right thing. And a lot of times you'll see young leaders in the army and, and there, are, there are two types of power that, that we use as leaders. We use positional power, which gains some form of compliance, or we use personal power, which gains that commitment. And you can see that Colonel Moore functioned with personal power. He had commitment from his troops, but he had commitments from he had commitment from his troops because they trusted him, um, because he did lead with an authoritative and affiliative style, which is extremely important. But if you look across the army, what are most of our young leaders doing? Are they leading with a version of personal power? Or are they leading with a ver leading with a version of, you know, positional power where they're just getting compliance from their soldiers? And, and I think you can. You, you can look at Colonel Moore and, and gain a lot of insight into what a good leader will do in order to gain that trust of the formation. How important is it to have, like, to, to, to know the big picture when it comes to, to, to NCOs, you know, uh, you know, knowing what's going on? Uh, and I, I bring this up because doc, Dr. Thompson is, is very well in, in, informed and, and he's knowledgeable. I mean, this is his, his, his uh, source of, uh, uh, or the, the, the thing that he specializes in. Uh, but you as a, as, a, as a senior NCO going through the sergeant's major course, you know, how important is it to, to, to know the big picture, to get to learn the, that big picture uh, as an NCO? Yeah, so, so for me, so first, you know, in my introduction, I pointed out that uh, I am a, a senior intelligence sergeant, so big picture matters a lot for me. Um, but I do think that big picture is important for every single soldier um, across the formation. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, First and most importantly is you can't get shared understanding if everybody doesn't isn't reading the same book or doesn't have the same information available. Um, so shared understanding matters a lot. But then I also think when we talk a little bit about how this fight unfolded, you could tell that the soldiers were committed. And one of the only ways you can gain commitment is by giving that why. And soldiers won't understand the why if they don't understand the big picture. So there's there's no reason to withhold information. Um, because if withholding information is only going to prevent the soldier from being able to see the why. And if a soldier can't see the why, they might not fully understand what you're doing. And if they don't fully understand what you're doing, you're not going to get commitment. You, you might get compliance if you're a strong enough leader, but you won't have that commitment. And then you won't have that shared understanding. And 
when you don't have a shared understanding, we, we talk a little bit about the, the disciplined initiative piece. Uh, disciplined initiative requires a little bit of innovation and you can't innovate if you don't know everything about what's going on or you can't accurately innovate. So you might, you might apply some initiative in, a worry, in an area that's counterproductive because you don't understand the bigger picture. You don't understand what is there, what's in front of you or, or, or what's going on in the deep fight. You know, because even though we're in this battle right here and now, there's also a deep fight going on at the same time, and you could be risking some portion of that deep fight. And to add to that, I one I agree, and also, um, if you talk with, you know, using Vietnam as an example, uh, veterans I talked to would have said, "Oh, it, you know, I just need to know what to get a particular mission finished," um, but there's also then like a disconnect of what they were doing and why it mattered, like questioning why were they in Vietnam? Why were they constantly going out on missions? So I think, yeah, it does matter to know the purpose behind what they're doing. So there's some value to it that probably would have helped in the long run, knowing why they were involved in what they were doing. Why did their actions matter? Why was that, you know, why was that fight important? Why were they doing this? And if they had that, that information, that probably would have helped with one like morale and a lot of other uh, negative things that we associate now with the Vietnam War, the breakdown of the Army in Vietnam. So, yeah, there's a whole lot you could say that could have been fixed or at least uh, remedied or made less bad, to put it bluntly, uh, if there was a lot more shared information. I think the only thing I'd... I'd like to add is that, you know, don't ever get, confidence is important, right? But don't ever get so confident that you prevent yourself from continuing to learn or continuing to expand or continuing to try to get better. Um, status quo will, will leave us behind our peers. We need to constantly try to improve how we're operating at every level, at, at every capacity. And every one of these um, principles of mission command, we need to really take a hard look at them. And regardless of how good we think we might be doing it, try to find ways to <clears throat> to get better or, you know, try to include different scenarios in your training that might really test some of these systems, you know, continue to conduct the assessment process, even if it makes you look bad at the time that you first first do it, because that's the only way we're truly going to get better because you, you don't want to be, you don't want to be finding out that you're not that you didn't train adequately or efficiently enough the first time in, in the actual firefight. Thank you, Master Sergeant Crawford and Dr. Thompson for joining us. And a thank you to our audience. Remember to put your knowledge to the page, submit articles, and get published with the NCO Journal. Don't forget to check out our webpage and follow us on social media. We'll catch you next time on the NCO Journal Podcast.